You're going to love this. Just love it. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. We're off today, but we've put together some of our favorite recent interviews that you may have missed. A best of the Bradcast, or as we like to call it, Bradcast Recounted. On today's show, as the Democratic Party prepares to allow internet voting for the first time in their presidential caucuses, Researchers recently found a backdoor in Switzerland's online voting system. Veteran cybersecurity and voting system journalist Kim Zetter joins Brad to talk about what happened in Switzerland and potential nightmare scenarios for the Democrats. But first, Sarah Pierce, immigration attorney and policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute, explains a new policy change recently announced by Trump's new U.S. Attorney General William Barr that would block asylum seekers who have already demonstrated a credible fear of return to their home countries from seeking a bond for their release until their asylum case can be heard. The new policy would keep them in detention for months and even years, despite existing lack of space at ICE detention facilities. So please sit back and enjoy today's broadcast Recounted. <laughs> It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Over the break, some breaking news. North Korea says it has test-fired a new type of tactical guided weapon with Kim Jong-un looking on, according to AP. Well, don't worry. We've got a, a man with a steady hand on the button here who's uh, able to respond to any such concerns. Why worry? we got an election next year. We'll just deal with Donald Trump then, Right. 324 days. That's how long 10-year-old Ervin spent separated from his dad, Jose, after they were torn apart at the southern border under the Trump administration's barbaric zero-tolerance policy. Announced last year by then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions in May, resulting in months of chaos, horror, and heartbreak as children were ripped from their parents, held in cages, and as many of those children are still separated from their parents today, nearly a year after their separation, the asylum seekers, 10-year-old uh, Irvin and his father, Jose, were finally reunited last week in Arkansas after they originally came to the U.S. last May, fleeing threats against their lives in Guatemala. But in custody, federal immigration agents shoved papers at Jose and told him to sign them. He told CBS News, I explained I couldn't speak or read English. The papers were uh, agreeing to his own deportation 
and Irvin was left behind. Irvin's uh, family does not believe that he was mistreated while detained, though they said he has nightmares still. Irvin said each night he and other children said a prayer. Some would cry. According to Lee Gallant, an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union, the big wild card out there is whether there may be thousands more who have been separated. The group successfully sued for the reunification of families last year and is pressing the judge in that case in Washington state to include what may still be thousands of other separated families. The government has remarkably asked for two years to just to identify those families, Gallant told CBS News. Before finally reuniting with his dad, Irvin told CBS that the first thing he would tell his dad is that he loves him. On Friday, he got a chance to do that, and both are now together as their asylum case continues to play out. Other children and parents are still waiting for that chance. Family separation, yes, remains a crisis. But that was the previous attorney general whose immigration pronouncements continue to wreak havoc. Now we have a new attorney general who is just beginning to issue his own pronouncements on border policy. The Trump administration took another significant step to try and discourage migrants from seeking asylum, issuing an order that could keep thousands of them in jail indefinitely while they wait for a resolution of their asylum requests, according to The New York Times today. The order issued by Attorney General William Barr was an effort to deliver on Trump's promise to end the so-called catch-and-release policy used with migrants crossing the border in hopes of escaping persecution in their home countries. The order, which directs immigration judges to deny some migrants a chance to post bail at all, thus keeping them detained for potentially months or even years, is all but certain to be challenged in federal court, but immigrant rights lawyers said that it could undermine the basic rights of people seeking safety in the United States. Barr's order is the latest effort by the Trump administration to reduce the number of immigrants who are able to seek protection from violence, poverty, and gangs by asking for legal status in the United States. But so far... Those efforts have largely failed to stem the tide, even as it has slowed the processing of asylum requests at ports of entry and as it has ordered that some asylum seekers be required to wait in Mexico during the process. At a recent campaign rally, Donald Trump said that some asylum claims were a, quote, big fat con job and he went on to warn of a crackdown on border policies. Barr's pronouncement means that under the new policy, which is to take, uh, uh, to take effect in 90 days, detained asylum seekers who have already demonstrated to immigration officials that they have a credible fear of returning to their country will no longer be allowed to ask a judge to grant them bond. Though, Barr notes, the policy will not apply to asylum-seeking families or unaccompanied children at the border, at least for now, and only to those who do not enter the U.S. through legal ports of entry, at least as I understand it. Joining us now to help make sense of what seems, if I read it correctly, yet another cruel pronouncement of questionable efficacy here from yet another Trump attorney general is Sarah Pierce. She's an immigration attorney and policy analyst for the U.S. for U.S. immigration policy program 
at the Migration Policy Institute, a nonpartisan independent think tank dedicated to analysis of U.S. and global immigration. Sarah Pierce, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get to some of the specific details of this newly announced uh, policy, why is it being enacted and uh, if it'll even work? Uh, those are some of the big questions I have. But before I even get there, can you help me understand the attorney general's seemingly unilateral authority here to make what seems to be a major change to U.S. immigration policy and enforcement and how it differs from what Republicans claimed to be furious about when the Obama administration was seemingly doing the same thing when it came to who would be granted asylum or not and who would be prosecuted and deported or not, etc. Sure. So this is a little known authority that the attorney general has, and it's left over from how we used to have an immigration system. Mm -hmm. So before we reorganized the government in the wake of 9-11, immigration was entirely housed in the Department of Justice. And as the attorney general was effectively the top immigration officer, he or she had the final say over immigration law, kind of a Supreme Court Mm -hmm. (laughs) over immigration. So, you know, in the wake of 9-11, we reorganized the government. The Department of Justice no longer houses the majority of our immigration system. That's now in the Department of Homeland Security. But the attorney general still holds this referral and review power. But it's not used very much. Mm -hmm. So during the entirety of uh, the George W. Bush administration, they used it nine times. Mm -hmm. During the entirety of the Obama administration, they used it four times. But under President Trump, they've really seen this power as a way for them to shape the immigration system. So it's been used ten times so far. In just two years so far. Just over two years. Exactly. Now, exactly. They've been very active. Now, Republicans claimed, uh, you know, for example, that the Obama policy of deferred deportation was unconstitutional or, or, or in violation of laws because he was doing that unilaterally. Now, whether that was or wasn't the case, are the various actions being taken now regarding immigration by this Im- uh, administration any different in that regard as far as an administration taking unilateral action on policy, uh, which, as I said, seemed to enrage them so much when Obama was the one doing it. Is the Trump administration actually doing it in any different fashion in that regard? So looking at it through a legal lens, it's kind of hard to compare Mm because President Obama, you know, the executive actions he took related to deferred action were his own authority, the president's authority, um, through prosecutorial discretion. Mm -hmm. These, meanwhile, is this, you know, very specific authority of the attorney general that they're utilizing to, to put out these decisions. Um, so it's, it's, it's different, <laughs> or at least it falls into different categories, though I certainly expect this most recent decision from the attorney general to be challenged in court. So we'll definitely see whether it can uphold legal scrutiny. So what is the, uh, what is the key change here to, uh, to current policy that we're seeing in uh, uh, Bill Barr's new order, as you see it? So this order says that if you are an asylum seeker and you cross in between ports of entry you and ICE decides to detain you, mm-hmm. you are ineligible for a bond hearing before an immigration court judge. That rule already applied to asylum seekers who were applying at ports of entry. Mm-hmm. So now it's, it's more uniform. Anyone who's arriving in the United States who doesn't have papers to enter and who's trying to apply for asylum if ICE decides to detain them, they cannot get bond. 
What you're saying that the policy uh, already applies, that uh, people coming in through uh, regular old legal ports of entry uh, claiming asylum, that they are they are not allowed uh, a bond hearing? That's right. So they're not allowed a bond hearing. They can be held indefinitely, and anyone else coming through a uh, non-legal port of entry also can now be held indefinitely. But this does not apply to families and uh, children traveling alone. Is that correct? That's right. I actually kind of think of there being three big exceptions to Mm -hmm. this. So families are exempted under um, litigation that's occurred under the Flores Settlement um, families can only be detained for 20 days, so this doesn't really apply to them. Unaccompanied children, it doesn't apply to them under a 2008 law that says that we can't detain children for long periods of time. Uh, but then also, anyone that ICE just decides not to detain, ICE is really strapped for resources, especially right now mm-hmm. facing you know, the crisis at the southern border. Uh, so ICE is not detaining a lot of individuals. They're using something called parole instead to allow them to come into the United States. So if ICE decides not to detain you, this rule won't apply to you as well. So uh, this this seems to me, at least from my reading, uh, it, well, is this an effort to push more folks through the already backlog ports of entry? If so, uh, if, if those folks were already being denied bond hearings, I'm not sure entirely that that will work, that it will change. Does it change the calculation as far as uh, how people may wish to come into the border or not? I know the administration has wanted people to come in through the ports of entry. Those are already wildly backlogged, as I understand it, with people waiting weeks to have their asylum claims processed, many now being forced to wait in Mexico. So will it actually change that equation at all as you see it? You're right, it won't. There's nothing about this will incentivize people to go to ports of entry. Um, They'll just continue how they're coming, and and most are crossing in between ports of entry to apply for asylum. And so ultimately, what I I guess this will do, you say ICE's uh, uh, detention facilities are already full. They're already letting people go. Won't this make those facilities even more full? Where are the people supposed to go if they're not uh, allowed to release them? Uh, I I don't understand how this uh, even can work, even if it is uh, put in place in 90 days. Yeah, it it, it can't, (laughs) or at least it can't work very well. The attorney general, like you said, he did delay it 90 days to give ICE time to ramp up facilities. So I expect us to see ICE you know, trying to do that. Of course, they've only been appropriated so much money from Congress, so mm-hmm. they might have to do some sneaky things with money to try to um, increase their detention capacity. But they're not going to be able to detain everyone. We have a lot of arriving asylum seekers right now. So I expect them to try to implement this as best they can, but it won't be a full-scale implementation. So is this really just another, um, I I hate to be crass about this, but is this really just another uh, 2020 uh, campaign pronouncement trying to look tough on the border if ultimately it's not going to make any actual difference and we don't even have the facilities to detain the people that we are now uh, going to uh, be detaining indefinitely. I'm, I, I guess I keep coming back to the, what's the point of this? <laughs> right. Yeah, I definitely think we can add it to a long list of failed policies that this administration has tried to implement along the southern border to be harsh, mm-hmm. you know, including 
family separation, family detention, the asylum ban. They've tried to implement a series of, of you know, really harsh policies along mm-hmm. the southern border to detain us, or deter asylum seekers from trying to come to the United States. Um, and they haven't been able to implement them for very long or, or not on the full scale. And this policy certainly seems to fall right in line with that pattern. There is a phrase which uh, Donald Trump and Fox News use, catch and release, which frankly uh, seems somewhat offensive and demeaning to me. But since it's something that Fox News has used for many years as if it was an outrageous idea, naturally Donald Trump uses it as well. He is similarly outraged by it. But is there a problem with our system of processing these asylum claims and allowing the applicants into the U.S. until their cases can be heard by an immigration judge? Is there actually a, a, a problem that needs to be solved uh, other than the numbers of, uh, of cases that need to be dealt with? Is there a problem with bringing them in, uh, you know, uh, determining whether they have a, a, a credible claim or not, and then releasing them into the U.S. until such time as uh, their case can be heard uh, by an immigration judge? I, I think the, the, the problem actually is with how long they wait mm-hmm. to have their asylum cases adjudicated. They frequently wait three, four, or even five years. And if you're talking about legitimate asylum seekers, that's a big problem because they're trying to set up lives in the United States, but they don't know what their future is. They don't know if they'll be permitted to stay here. And the evidence for their case is getting really outdated. But the way the system is set up, it does incentivize people with less than legitimate claims to try to come to the United States and claim asylum because they know they'll they'll be permitted to enter um, and at least stay for a temporary period of time. So the I think, you know, what the administration could do to really address what's going on in a, a proper and humane fashion would be just to shorten the amount of time these asylum seekers are waiting to have their claims adjudicated. Um, but we really haven't seen them make any sort of concentrated effort to resolve that big problem. And that's the big problem. That's sort of where I was going with that question. It, because isn't the real problem here just a lack of immigration judges and wouldn't the money that Donald Trump is right now trying to steal from the military to build his wall under this uh, so-called national emergency declaration, wouldn't that money be better spent in hiring hundreds, uh, if not thousands of new immigration judges so that these uh, cases can be processed much faster? That seems to be the rather simple solution, at least to uh, my simple understanding of this issue. Yeah, absolutely. Or at the Migration Policy Institute, we've also argued that USCIS, uh, our U.S. immigration agency, mm-hmm. they have a professional asylum corps that's, that's there adjudicating asylum, a different type of asylum claims. The administration could easily give all of these asylum cases to the USCIS asylum corps, and they could process them much faster than the immigration court ever could. There, you know, an adjudication before one asylum officer. It's less resource intensive, and it's also nicer for the asylum seeker. It's it's not as adversarial as or as intimidating as going before an immigration <laughs> court. So there there are several options before the administration to try to resolve what's going on. Unfortunately, they seem to have the mindset that there are no legitimate asylum seekers, and that they just want to limit this potential benefit as much as possible. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, you say it's much nicer for the asylum seeker. I guess that's one of the reasons they don't want to do it. But otherwise, I was going to say, if there is that uh, option, why aren't they doing it? Are they concerned that one agency will be more, uh, you know, uh, respectful of these concerns than the other agency that is currently uh, overseeing these claims? 
Yeah, that, that's likely a concern of the administration. Mm-hmm. The USCIS Asylum Corps is the same group of individuals that actually conduct the preliminary interview at the southern border. Mm-hmm. And as we've heard from recent reports, the administration is thinking about taking it away from them and giving it instead to Border Patrol officers. So there does seem to be this level of suspicion with, with our U.S. immigration agency and how they adjudicate asylum. Um, but, you know, like I said, this administration just doesn't seem that interested in resolving this systemic problem. Instead, they just want to deter asylum seekers from arriving at the southern border. They want to limit how many ultimately apply for asylum and then limit how many ultimately receive it. I've got uh, two quick questions related here before I let you go. Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute. Um Last week, the administration announced that it was ending aid to programs meant to slow the flow of migrants coming up from Central America, from countries like Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, and so forth. Uh, That idea seems both uh, ill-considered and simply counterproductive to their proclaimed efforts. If they want to slow the number of folks coming up here, it seems like helping to make things better in the home countries would do that. Am I missing something here? Is there some reason that it actually makes sense to cut off the aid to those non-governmental groups who are trying to help people in those countries and help them to stay at home? Yeah, you're right. It's kind of an odd retaliatory action that the government seems to be engaging in. Um, And I think, you know, like you seem to recognize, the money doesn't actually go to the government. The money goes to projects that are happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't expect this. I mean, if this is going to have any effect on migration, if anything, it would increase the incentives people already have to leave their home countries. And, and then making things worse on the border, which uh, I guess the administration pretends they don't want to see. Maybe they do want to see it. I don't know. Sarah, taken together, the the family separation policy, the attempts to deny asylum claims uh, made on the basis of domestic abuse and gang violence, uh, forcing migrants to wait in shelters in Mexico and even reduce, re- reducing the, the number of Perfectly legal immigrants who uh, are, are uh, you know, granted visas and green cards, etc. Is there? Uh, well, let me ask you, ask you this way, because I know you're a nonpartisan organization, but what is the problem that these policies are really meant to solve for this administration and its supporters, as you see it? I I do think that there is a political incentive for this president to just look like he's active on immigration, to, to show that he's engaged in the fight and, and you know, fighting for the, the policies that his base is interested in, and maybe less of an, a political interest in actually having results on the ground. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that's one incentive mm-hmm. of this administration, to just try to keep hammering in these harsh policies, whether or not they're actually going to stand up in court or be effective on the ground. Sarah Pierce, policy analyst and immigration attorney at the Migration Policy Institute, uh, a nonpartisan independent think tank dedicated to analysis of U.S. and global immigration. Sarah, I really appreciate you joining us today. I'm going to point folks uh, towards your website, migrationpolicy.org, and suggest that folks follow them on Twitter at Migration Policy and that they follow you as well on the Twitters. Very helpful feed you have there at Sarah Pierce 
ESQ. Sarah, really appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Brad. You bet. That was Brad's conversation with Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute. Coming up next on Bradcast Recounted, veteran cybersecurity and voting system journalist Kim Zetter explains what happened when Switzerland invited hackers to test their online voting system and what it could mean for the Democratic Party's plan to implement online voting for its 2020 presidential caucuses. I'm Desi Doyen. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. You're listening to Bradcast Recounted. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We spoke a week or so ago with journalist Steve Rosenfeld about the Democratic National Committee's new directive to states that plan to run caucuses during the very crowded 2020 presidential primary race next year instead of primaries which the party is encouraging as a more egalitarian way to allow voters to select its nominee for the crucial 2020 presidential election. But for those uh, state Democratic parties who choose instead to stick with caucuses, such as Iowa with its first-in-the-nation caucus set for February 3rd of next year, the party has mandated that some form or another of remote voting must be made available for those who are not able to attend caucuses in person. That has sent a number of those state Democratic parties which run their own caucuses versus primaries, which tend to be run by state and county election officials. It sent those uh, Democratic Party officials out to consider adding some form of online or smartphone voting to the already sometimes quite confusing and hectic caucus process. Rosenfeld warned that there still seems to be much confusion among Democratic Party officials about how this process may play out, what systems may be uh, used or really tested for the first time in that crucial nominating process next year. He cited a number of notorious online voting failures, such as those carried out by the Utah State Republican Party, Back in 2016 and in 2018 and in a number of online party elections across Canada, which resulted in various disasters, including one election that he reports was outright stolen by a conservative party in Alberta in 2017. But for Democrats and even states and counties around the country who may be considering some form of online voting as being pushed by a number of private online and smartphone voting vendors, some may look to Switzerland, where a number of that nation's cantons, that's essentially what we would consider to be states in the uh, Swiss Confederation, uh, a number of them have been using online e-voting for some time. So confident is Switzerland in its online voting system that the uh, Swiss Post, that's the National Post Office, which runs elections in, Switzer in Switzerland, uh, last month 
As required by a legal directive, the Swiss Post opened its e-voting system to a public hacker test, which began at the end of uh, February and wraps up this weekend. The test, known as an intrusion test, was meant to allow independent IT specialists uh, to register to put the system through its paces by attempting to manipulate the results of a fictitious online election, even uh, releasing the system's source code to those cybersecurity experts who sign up to test the system. Well, early last month, as an announcement at the Swiss Post website noted in an interview with Dennis Morell, the head of e-voting at Swiss Post was not losing any sleep about the public hack testing of its system. Morell told the interviewer, I'm sleeping very well, all things considered, and with good reason. He said, uh, the Swiss Post e-voting system has been in operation for a number of years. We perform these sorts of intrusion tests in-house every two months or so in conjunction with specialists from a wide variety of units. And he noted they've had absolutely no problems to date. Swiss Post has boasted that the system, developed by an international voting vendor named Seitel, which is a leader in developing various Internet and other voting and online reporting solutions for national and regional elections in some 42 countries, including at least 1,400 counties here in the U.S., um, Swiss Post has voted that that system has already been examined thoroughly through professional audits paid for by Swiss Post with KPMG, an auditing giant, though it has never made the auditing reports public or indicated if anything significant got changed as a result of those audits. That, according to longtime cybersecurity reporter Kim Zetter at Vice.com's motherboard last week. So with public test period uh, now ending, how did it go? Well, according to Zetter, not very well. Uh, her recent report at Motherboard begins, quote, an international group of researchers who have been examining the source code for an Internet voting system Switzerland plans to roll out this year have found a critical flaw in the code that would allow someone to alter votes without detection. Yeah, that sort of seems to be a problem. I wonder how Mr. Morell is uh, sleeping tonight. Joining us now to explain what the researchers found, what it means for the Swiss e-voting system, and frankly, what it may mean or should mean for similar schemes being considered for use here in the U.S. Uh, for our own crucial 2020 elections and beyond is Kim Zetter. As I said, she's a longtime cybersecurity and national security journalist and author, having written hundreds of stories for Wired News, now frequently found at Vice.com's motherboard and at The New York Times, where in all cases she has broken innumerable stories of great national import on the uh, never-ending security concerns of electronic voting and tabulation. She's also author of Countdown to Zero Day, Stuxnet, and the launch of the world's first digital weapon. And by the way, she's also one of the very few journalists that has stayed focused on the threat of e-voting-related issues as long or maybe even longer than I have, if you can believe such a thing. And I couldn't be more appreciative of that. Kim Zetter, it's been quite a while, but welcome back to the show. <laughs> 
Well, that's quite an introduction. Thanks, Brad. Well, uh, <laughs> it is all true. I'm glad you're still on this beat, Kim. Really glad. Uh, so uh, to that end, in Switzerland, uh, how'd that test go? What did the independent researchers find once they were given a chance to, to look at that code? Well, what's interesting is that these researchers weren't actually even part of that independent testing. Um, what happened was that the Swiss law requires them to make the source code uh, public mm-hmm. for people to examine, and so they opened the source code. Open. Uh, they gave, made the source code available only to people who were actually registered. Mm-hmm for that public pen testing that you described. But someone didn't like the conditions under which um, you had to follow in order to register and get access to that source code. Mm -hmm. So they took that source code and posted it online and made it available to anyone. (laughs) And so the researchers in this case actually looked at that, that source code that was leaked online. So they're not part of the public pen test. And just in looking at that for about a week's time, no more than that, they found a serious flaw essentially a backdoor in the cryptography scheme that would allow someone to alter votes but make it look like the votes haven't been altered at all. So what happens is you, as a a voter, will uh, go online and mark their ballot and submit it to the system. And then the system shuffles the ballots through a series of servers Mm -hmm. in order to separate them from the voter to make it anonymous. And those ballots get encrypted and decrypted by each server as they're being shuffled. But there's a problem in the way that it's done, in the way that they implemented it, that would allow someone to swap out the legitimate ballots and votes during that process and put in completely rogue ones. But the system is supposed to have a check in it that's Mm -hmm. supposed to design to ensure that the ballots that go into that encryption process and come out of that decryption process are the exact same ballots. But there's a flaw in that um, proof um, that verifies that those ballots are the same. And so, therefore, that would allow someone to swap out the votes and ballots while the proof still seemed to show that the ballots were the same. Uh, which is, well, major. yeah, <laughs> very major. Uh, just to put it simply, as you do in the story, the flaw could allow someone to swap out all of the legitimate ballots and replace them with fraudulent ones all without detection. Now, first, Kim, I, I'm I'm sort of struck by not not just not just without detection, yeah. but so that the system is actually because there's a proof in the system that's designed to uh-huh. verify, and the proof itself would still show uh, would still seem to show that the ballots were the same. So it's not just even without detection, but while the election officials actually think that they have proof that nothing has changed. You, you would have evidence they'd be able to say, uh, well, here, here's the proof that everything is perfect, everything yes. is, is counted as cast. I mean, I'm sort of actually, I was struck off the bat there, Kim, when you mentioned that it, it, sort of the, the hack test itself was hacked, that the <laughs> that the, informa- the source code was actually released and it wasn't even supposed to be. That alone is uh, should be instructive here. But uh, this private company, Seidel, uh, they work on elections in the U.S. as well, but they don't currently run uh, Internet elections here, mostly just election night website reporting systems, uh, which also offer some security vulnerabilities. But uh, well, well, yeah. so, so what they do in the U.S. is so it's not just election night reporting. Mm-hmm. They, they operate systems that deliver um, ballots to voters overseas, mm-hmm. primarily to military um, voters and residents that are outside the U.S. 
So those voters can actually receive ballots through a recital system. They just can't submit them back uh, digitally. They have to actually print them out, um, hand mark mm-hmm. the ballots, and then send them in the mail. Um, but it is a delivery system. Right. And there is some vulnerabilities there, but they don't count votes per se. Yeah. Uh, for whatever that's worth. But in this case, uh, they're the, the, the developers behind the Swiss system, um, uh, they, uh, you report they downplayed the researchers' findings. Uh, how so? Well, um, what they said was the researchers uh, gave them a courtesy um, preview of their research, mm-hmm. and Swiss Post uh, passed it off the sidle. I don't think the Swiss Post was very happy um, with the flaw that the researchers found. Not that they were unhappy with the researchers. Mm-hmm. I think that they were unhappy with Seidel and um, gave it to Seidel, and Seidel uh, supposedly fixed the issue. So Swiss Post was kind of downplaying it at the same time they also weren't happy with it. Um, it's unclear, however, if the fix that Seidel did uh, actually works. The researchers who know what the, the, the basis of the fix is say that if it's implemented correctly, it should fix the problem. But because Seidel got the implementation wrong the first time around, there's no reason to believe that they get the fix right as well. And the other major concern, and there's a lot of them here, but the other major concern uh, is that in in trying to defend this system, uh, it seems that uh, Seidel and or Swiss Post was saying, well, you know, this isn't that bad because you would have to be, you would have had to have been an insider to exploit this uh, this this issue, it, it, it do, am I characterizing what, sort of their defense of of the issue? Yeah, so we hear this um, quite a lot from U.S. officials as well. Election officials all the time mm-hmm. say uh, when when researchers point out vulnerabilities that could be hacked, the election officials say, "Well, that would be illegal for someone to do," as if. <laughs> No one would ever do anything illegal um, to alter an election. And yep. it's the same thing with the Swiss, uh, Swiss Post comment, that you would have to be an insider. Well, that's precisely the kind of attacker that you're worried about. You're not, we're not just worried about outsiders remotely hacking into a system, but we're, at, we're actually worried about privileged insiders mm-hmm. who can take their time and have the knowledge of the system to do an expert manipulation of it. And this is an important issue that I want to underscore, and I, I spoke about it in the last segment. I've been speaking about it for many years, but uh, after the 2004 election in Ohio, which was itself controversial, there was a, uh, a so-called Blue Ribbon Commission that was formed. It was headed up by James Baker and former President Jimmy Carter, who is now, as of today, the longest, uh, the, the oldest living former president. Uh, and what they found was that the greatest threat to Elections, voting systems actually come from insiders. They write in their report, quote, there is no reason to trust insiders in the election industry any more than in any other industry. This is a concept that over the years I have found both election officials and vendors don't seem to fully appreciate or care about or or even they become offended by it. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of both election officials and private voting system vendors and programmers who have access to the electronic systems, even without online voting here in the U.S., but just to the to the touchscreen systems and to the uh, computer tabulators and so forth that we use in this country. Yeah, I think that, I mean, so I, I get that they're insulted that anyone would, would imply that insiders might um, alter an election. Um, but, you know, we have a history of elections being manipulated by insiders, whether they were voting machines or just, you know, paper ballots in the past. 
uh, where ballots go missing, ballot boxes go missing, things like that. So insiders are perfectly placed to do this kind of manipulation. Um, essentially, you know, we should have a voting system where we're not required to trust anyone. We're not required to trust um, election officials. We're not required to trust the vendors. We're not required to trust the voting machine itself. We should have a system that can be audited independently of all of those parties in order to verify the election results. And that's really in the best interest of everyone because, you know, when things go wrong, there's naturally a finger pointing at, if not an outsider, then an insider. And it's in the interest of election officials and vendors both uh, to have a system that can be independently audited so that they themselves are never, uh, you know, uh, in, in a suspect position. Thank you. Thank you for saying so. I've been uh, trying to point that out, and I've even been on air with, you know, election officials at various times who tell me, Brad, to a certain extent, you have to trust your election officials. One of them famously uh, from Monterey County, California, some years ago, told me that on air. And then a few uh, months later, he was actually charged with 60 counts of fraud and all sorts of other things that he pled no contest to. So it's not meant as an insult to anybody. The, the point is the public need to know that their elections have been uh, uh, carried out fairly and they need to be able to oversee those elections by themselves. And I'm concerned um, not just with online systems, but with a lot of systems that I know uh, you have seen that have been now spreading, even all of these years later, to places like Georgia, to my own home county of Los Angeles County, Texas, Pennsylvania, Ohio, that will uh, print computer-printed, computer-marked ballots that are being spreading quickly before 2020 and being supported by Republicans and Democrats alike, even though the cybersecurity experts that I talk to all say hand-marked paper ballots are the way to go. Is there any alternative that you see to what seems obvious, hand-marked paper ballots that we can all oversee? Yeah, you're talking about the what are, what are known as ballot-marking devices. Mm -hmm. um, just a quick explanation of what those are for our listeners. Uh, this is a, a system, it's designed to be accessible for disabled voters mm -hmm. or voters who need the ballots in, in a different language. Um, it uses a touchscreen in most places, so the voter can go to a computer, uh, mark their selections on the screen, but that device doesn't actually tabulate the votes. Um, all it does is then print out a ballot on paper. Mm -hmm. The voter can view the paper to make sure that the machine marked them correctly, and then the ballot gets put into an optical scan machine that actually tabulates the votes. So technically, there isn't anything wrong with those systems as long as you do a manual audit of those paper ballots afterwards to make sure that the scanner has recorded those ballots accurately. And you also need to make sure, so, that, so one of the biggest complaints of the ballot marking devices is that some of these systems print out ballots that have a barcode on them, mm -hmm. and that when you put the ballot through the scanner, instead of reading the human readable portion of the ballot that the viewer has actually, or that the voter has actually examined and verified, the scanner will read what's in that barcode and that hidden barcode. Mm -hmm. And so the concern then is that that barcode could have something uh, manipulated inside of it, and so the the voter looks at the ballot, sees one thing, but that the scanner has actually seen something else. Again, if you do a manual audit afterwards and check the human readable portion of the ballot against the digital count, you'll be able to see and catch something like that. So um, in all cases, again, you shouldn't trust any system. You shouldn't trust a hand-marked paper ballot either if it's going through um, a digital scanner. 
because, again, you're dealing with electronic software. So the biggest fix for all of this stuff, no matter whether the ballot is created uh, by hand by the voter or created by a machine uh, marked by the voter, the reassurance that we have can only come from a manual audit of those paper ballots against the digital tally. Uh, we've been uh, speaking with a number of uh, cybersecurity experts in recent weeks and months as they're looking at moving to such a system, a BMD system, for all voters in Georgia, that, as you describe. And among the folks we've talked to, Professor Rich DeMello of Georgia Tech, uh, who uh, recently uh, came out with a study finding that, no, we can't even, never mind that those barcodes that no humans can read, we can't have any confidence after an election that the uh, computer-marked ballots were actually verified accurately by the voters who apparently don't uh, look at those uh, printed ballots quite often. He also found that there's another system that uh, is being used currently in Kansas that prints out the ballot but then allows that same paper ballot to go back through the printer again before it is scanned, at which time new marks can be added to the ballot. And uh, finally, uh, Philip Stark, the professor from UC Berkeley, who invented post-election risk-limiting audits, says that uh, auditing those sorts of systems are actually meaningless. All of them are calling for hand-marked paper ballots as the most verifiable system. Yeah, but again, uh, the the hand-marked paper ballot still has to go through an audit. So... Mm -hmm. You know, if a voter hand marks that ballot, and if the voter doesn't review that ballot, yeah. and oftentimes they're not going to, you know, they're going to hand mark that ballot, they may not fill it out correctly, or they may have missed things, and that ballot still goes through and gets counted. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that the voter verifying the ballot, you know, that's going to be an issue in any election, no matter how the ballot is filled out. So I, I think that the point is that the, the best that we can do, though, is to still do that manual audit. I think that to that issue regarding the, that um, that Dominion machine mm-hmm. that goes back through a scanner twice yeah. is a concern. So I think that the systems um, uh, under, undergoing testing and things like that have to meet a certain level of security um, so those things aren't, aren't done and that the source code has to be examined. Um, but I think ultimately the way to go is... Um, to a manual audit of the ballots afterwards. The reason I, I sort of raised that point and these others is because, Kim, as long as you have been uh, c- covering these stories as I have been covering, it's sort of like deja vu all over again. Nothing personable, personal, but reading your story in Switzerland, it was almost the least surprising story of the year. We see this all the time. Uh, the companies uh, or the jurisdictions come out with new voting systems. They say they have tested them. Uh, In the case of the U.S., they give them to the Elections Assistance Commission. They certify them with these private companies. In Switzerland, we had KPMG, you know, a professional uh, company who has supposedly looked at these uh, systems uh, over and over again. And yet, as soon as they are released to, in some fashion, to the public, to independent uh, testers and cybersecurity voting system experts, they find problems like this. This happens over and over again in virtually every system that we have seen, Kim. Yeah, I, so I think that the um, the issue here is that there's never been a high bar for any of these systems. And because they've been closed-source proprietary systems, uh, the vendors have allowed to really do uh, create sloppy systems 
um, that no one and no one has really demanded uh, more secure systems. We're seeing a, a change in the public's view now. Um, after the 2016 election, I say thank you to the Russians uh, for drawing <laughs> attention to the matter, because without that 2016 scare, um, we wouldn't have the attention focusing on voting systems now and the call for manual uh, for paper ballots and manual mm-hmm. audits. Um, there was a story that I wrote last week um, about a new system mm-hmm. that is being de- being designed by the Defense uh, Department's uh, DARPA Institute, mm-hmm. um, a ten million dollar contract given to a third party company uh, to develop what would be an open source uh, secure voting system using new secure methods. Mm-hmm. And if you have an open source system where the soft core the software is is not proprietary and is not secret. Then you have the ability for people to examine it and, and first of all, catch uh, problems with the system, catch problems with the security in the first place. It doesn't solve all problems. You still need to have a way of verifying that that open source software that everyone has examined is actually the software that's installed on the voting machines and hasn't been altered after it was installed on the right, voting machine. Right, right. So that's a separate issue, but yeah. that's, that's, um, that's uh, resolvable. Um, but I think that that's really the direction that I think everyone has figured out that we need to go, um, is to have an open source transparent system, uh, and then some way of verifying that that open software hasn't been altered on systems, and then ultimately a way of verifying that that software actually recorded uh, paper ballots accurately. Yeah, and I want to thank you for that story as well. I, I hope to talk to the developers uh, about that as well, because as you might imagine, Kim, I remain uh, dubious of that as well, but, you know, that's my <laughs> job, to be uh, dubious and skeptical of all of this. Uh, very quickly, just to uh, sort of bring this back to both online elections, Internet voting, because uh, the system you're talking about from DARPA, I don't believe, is meant as an Internet system, and to bring it back to U.S. elections. Uh, One of the points that Dr. David Jefferson of Livermore National Labs, I'm sure you know him, a longtime e-voting advisor out here uh, to, I think, five consecutive California secretaries of state. Uh, He was on the show some time ago and he told us that really there is no way to do a legit test of an internet voting system because the tactics that real hackers might use would actually be illegal to carry out uh, even in a mock internet election. Is there really any way uh, to solve this problem? I mean, I've I've been told that uh, internet voting is really unsolvable. And if you look at the fact that you can't even do a a proper test, is there uh, something to that point? Uh, well, I, I think I disagree with David on, on that regard. I mean, if it is a proper test and you're telling the testers you can hack this legally, um, do, a, do a pen test of it, and, and you don't have um, people going out of the scope of the test, um, then you, you can do a test of the system. The problem with these, these tests, though, are often that only parts of the system is actually open to the scope of the attack. Mm-hmm. So, you know, often what happens is they'll say, well, you can, you can try to hack the public internet, the public facing internet system that the voters will use, but you can't try and get into our back end system by, for instance, doing a phishing attack against the election officials. Right. And of course, that's the way that an attacker would actually do it. They yeah. wouldn't necessarily come into the front door. So there are limitations to those systems. Um, and if the scope isn't entirely open, 
to an attacker to pen test every possible uh, method of getting into the system, then it's really kind of uh, pointless and useless. And I think that's sort of his point. You can't do phishing attacks, you can't do denial of service attacks, you know, you can't knock out the internet in a, in a particular uh, uh, part of town where the test is being held, which you might see in, uh, in an attack on an online uh, election. Um, finally, uh, Kim, do you share my concern I mentioned at the top of the segment here um, about this mandate from the DNC that state Democratic parties must include some form of remote voting uh, with their caucuses this year in the presidential nominating co- uh, uh, contest? Steve Rosenfeld has been uh, one of the few folks who has been trying to look into this and figure out what Democrats have in mind. I don't know what they have in mind. We are really months away now from from this, uh, you know, from the beginning of the caucuses. And they're going to be essentially testing these on a live presidential election. I don't know if you've done any reporting on this, but do you share the concerns that I do about this? Uh, I haven't looked in to see see what the final resolution was. I know that they were talking about doing it over the phone, but I don't know what that meant, if they were uh, sending a ballot and then someone prints it out from their their phone or if it's actually um, transmitting votes via the phone. Um, What often happens with these uh, systems, however, is that the election officials will make the claim, well, you do um, online banking all the time from your phone, Mm -hmm. so why, why not be submitting ballots? Um, but online banking also is not secure. The difference with online banking, however, we, the reason that we accept it is because um, uh, customers have no liability with online banking. Mm. If your device is compromised and someone steals money from your bank, you have recourse and you can go to the bank and the bank will restore that money. You don't have that kind of resource with an election system. If your vote gets stolen, there's no way of getting it back. Um, also with banking, they have ledgers and accounting so mm-hmm. that they can see exactly where money went and what happened to it. And if money disappears from your account, uh, it shows up in the ledgers. Um, with online voting, uh, it can be done like, like the researchers in the Swiss voting system showed. Uh, it, they can be done in a way that the votes are swapped out that you actually never even know. There's no right. trace of it. So when people always say that, well, we do a lot of things over our phone that are secure, why isn't voting secure? It's really not a proper analogy because uh, doing anything over your phone is not secure. Uh, we, just that we have different ways of uh, catching those other uh, ways of using our phone right. in, in other systems. And, and because we have, uh, you know, with banking, I can go back and look and make sure a transaction was correct from... 10 years ago, I can go back, the bank can go back, the credit card companies, whatever, we can all go back. But with a secret ballot system, once that vote is dropped into that box, whether it's a virtual box or not, it's done. And, you know, and and, and that's what makes this uh, such a, a, a difficult problem to solve. Even if elections are secure, there is really no way for the public I'm concerned when you're dealing with electronic systems like this for the public to know that the system is secure. And I've long argued that's uh, as much of a threat to our our, our democratic elections as anything else. The erosion it allows in confidence uh, in our representative democracy, Uh, Kim, even if there were no problems in 2016, even if Russia or insiders or anybody else, uh, if they did nothing, if the election in 2016 was absolutely secure, that's fantastic. But if the public can't know it was secure, uh, I've long argued that in and of itself is a threat 
to our democracy. Do, do you share that concern? Yes, I, it comes back to my point where I said we shouldn't have to trust the systems and we shouldn't have to trust the election officials. Uh, we should be showing that the results were accurate, um, regardless of whether or not um, anything was secure. And uh, that's the, the reason for these uh, manual, for the paper ballots and manual audits, is that we can know um, the results. We have a backup, right? We can know the results even if uh, it turns out the machines have been compromised. I have concerns about those audits, too. As long as KPMG isn't uh, running them, maybe they'll be okay. I don't know. We'll, t- we'll, we'll uh, bicker about that uh, the next time you join us, Kim. Really great talking to you. Uh, Kim Zetter, longtime cybersecurity national security journalist. Find her work at motherboard.vice.com. Follow her on the Twitters where, she'll, uh, where she breaks all kinds of stories at Kim Zetter, uh, including many of her uh, landmark reports at at New York Times. Kim, greatly appreciate you joining us today. Keep up the good work, and uh, maybe someday we won't have to cover these stories at all anymore. <laughs> Let's hope. Thanks a lot, Brad. You bet. Thank it. you. Yes, hope springs eternal. That's it for today's edition of Bradcast Recounted. Thanks so much to our guest today, veteran cybersecurity journalist Kim Zetter and Sarah Pierce of the Migration Policy Institute, and to you for spending part of your day with us. It is our honor and our privilege. If you've missed any portion of today's program or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Please find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Drop us an email if you like and tell us what you think at bradcast at bradblog.com. And as ever, our thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We'll be back soon. And that is it. Until we meet again, I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>